Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, September 25th, 2019 edition of our little weather get together. It's show number 293. And tonight we're happy to have Brad Panovich, Chief Meteorologist at WCNCE in Charlotte, North Carolina, as well as Chief Meteorologist Eric Thomas from WBTV in Charlotte, North Carolina as well. As you know, uh, we have been talking about this uh, on and off throughout the past couple of years on the show about the radar hole. You've seen us do it in severe weather coverage. We've talked about it on the show. Well, tonight we're going to dive into the solution and what's going on uh, to hopefully uh, solve this issue. So Brad and Eric have been working on that with, along with a few other folks, and we're going to kind of get an update of the progress and just exactly what may be happening in the Carolinas to solve that issue. So we appreciate uh, you watching tonight. Uh, we are streaming right now on Periscope, Twitter, Facebook Live and uh, on our YouTube page, as well as Twitch. So there's many ways that you can watch tonight. If you have any questions or comments throughout the show, we encourage you uh, to send those comments and questions in. Uh, we will be monitoring those. And if you have any questions for our guests, uh, we'll be able to ask them throughout the show. So uh, we hope that you'll tune on and uh, get your answer if you have one. Uh, if you are listening on the podcast version, you can also interact with our guests. We'll let Brad and Eric give out uh, their social media platforms towards the end of the show. That way, if you have any questions specifically for them, you can tweet them or Facebook, however you wish. So again, this is show number 293, and uh, we're happy to have Eric Thomas and Brad Panovich on with us. Uh, gentlemen, you guys both uh, very uh, popular in the Charlotte area. So for those folks who may be watching from other areas of the Carolinas, this is kind of a first time question we ask our guests, but uh, you guys have been on our show a lot, but maybe those folks who are living in the uh, the parts of uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, don't get to see you every day and night on television. Uh, kind of tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and uh, your weather uh, journey. So, uh, Eric, I will start with you first. Maybe uh, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you and then Brad, and then we'll get into tonight's topic. Okay. Do you have a couple of hours? Just kidding. Um Okay, yeah, I am a uh, Penn State uh, meteorologist, graduate in uh, 1982, and I'm not a big fan of Ohio State, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but um, no, I, uh, um, uh, let's see, it was eight, class of 82, and I actually originally studied meteorologists because I wanted to be a Navy pilot, and I was fortunate enough to get accepted into the AOCS in the fall of 1982, and then I promptly failed the, uh, the physical. Uh, so, so out I went and I studied meteorology at Penn state in order for that to be my golden ticket, uh, as a pilot. And because they love, they love meteorologists, as you might imagine, uh, flying around, uh, in the atmosphere. And, uh, so once, once that dream crashed, uh, I, I fell back on my meteorology and I actually broke into television, which was really never my plan. Uh, but I did end up breaking into television in the fall of 83 in a small little market, Steubenville, Ohio, speaking of Ohio. And uh, it was great. And so for the first six months of 84, I was their meteorologist uh, in Steubenville, Ohio. And then in the summer of 84, I went to another small uh, TV market. It was Monroe, Louisiana, from 84 to 88. And then in 1988, I came up here uh, to Charlotte. And I was so excited to get back to Charlotte. I told my wife, I said, as long as things work out, I'm going to retire here. This is it. We're done. And so far, so good. I'm almost 60 years old now, and I've been in WBTV for 31 years, and I've raised three kids. They're all out of the house now, and it's just been a dream come true, uh, getting to serve the greater Charlotte area and uh, the Piedmont of North and South Carolina, along with the foothills and the mountains. Those are our 22 counties that we cover. And uh, so that's pretty much the, the history, the short history uh, with my career and my involvement with uh, the Carolinas. And, uh, you know, I've had a lot of fun, too, trying to help out foster children. I was adopted uh, when I was very, very young. And so the, my mission now in the Carolinas is to call attention to children who are uh, in foster care and are needing families. And so that's the other thing I've been involved with outside of meteorology. And I know we're going to talk about the radar project tonight that Brad and I have both been involved in and uh, maybe even revisit the hurricane season a little bit. So there you go. Hopefully I haven't rambled too long. So that's the latest. And Brad, uh, for you, for those folks who, uh, who may not know you, tell us a little bit about you as well. 
Well, Eric and I have a lot more in common than I think even I, you realize, you know, I, I wanted to go to Penn State, Eric, really bad. That wow. was like, my, that was my choice when I was in high school. I actually took two math classes in high school to get in to the main campus. I wanted to get on State College uh, main campus there. Um, but obviously living in Ohio, it was not very uh, financially prudent to go to out of state school. So I ended up going to Ohio State, got my degree in atmospheric science and a lot like Eric. I never in a million years wanted to be on TV. I just wanted to be a meteorologist. Uh, loved it since I was six years old. Um, fell in love with a snowstorm. A, a blizzard of 78 growing up in Northeast Ohio was the first storm for me that was like kind of sold me on it. And I stumbled into TV by accident. Um, got my first job in Dayton, Ohio uh, on a whim um, from a friend, actually uh, Mike Bettis, who I graduated from Ohio State with at the Weather Channel. Um, good friend of mine, he was working there and was leaving to take another job and said, hey, I got this buddy who just graduated. He'd love to work here. So got into TV and, and Dayton, went to Traverse City, Michigan for a year um, as a chief meteorologist up there. I also spent time in Louisiana and New Orleans for four years um, before coming up to Charlotte in the December 2002. And Eric will remember that December, the big ice storm um of 2002 that was my first week in charlotte and so it was a grand old time so i've been here almost almost 17 years it'll be 17 years this december that i uh, i came to charlotte and uh, kind of worked my way up i started on weekends went to monday through friday for a while um after katrina and then um after that moved up to chief meteorologist and um like eric i loved it here as soon as i moved here i knew this is where i wanted to be long term met my wife here had my kids here so I really love the Carolinas. We're really lucky to live here. It's a great place to live. And as a meteorologist, it's like, it's like a, it's like a fantasy world. You got mountains, you got the beach, you've got this amazing, crazy climate with cold air damming. So it really, the weather and the, the quality of life here sold me on this area. And I love, love living here. Gotcha. Thank you so much for that, Eric. Thanks for, thanks Brad too. Um, let's jump right into our topic for this evening. Um, before we get into the meat and the, you know, the real central part of the radar gap in this project, um, let's start real basic. So I'm going to direct our first question towards Eric here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what radar is and scientifically how it works before we get into the whole meat of the project? Let's start real basic there. Sure. Well, obviously any radar system, and they all have a lot in common with each other, but uh, there, there's a transmitter uh, at the root of all of it, and it sends out a microwave uh, signal, which is intended to bounce off, you know, targets. Uh, sometimes in the military, it might be airplanes. In our case, it's, it's weather targets. And so as the beam is fired out into the atmosphere, uh, it reflects off these weather targets, hydrometeors, if you will, uh, generally speaking, you're talking about raindrops, but it could also be uh, hail, it could be some sort of ice, it could be a mixture, it could be grapple, uh, somewhere in between. Uh, melting layers can get very interesting when you're talking about how much of that energy is reflected uh, back to the radar itself. And so what happens then is the radar receives this signal that's being bounced back to it. It interprets it, first of all, in terms of the density uh, of the rainfall, in other words, how heavy is the rain or how heavy is the hail, uh, and then that, after that's been interpreted and analyzed, then the software in the radar uh, then can translate that into an image and color code it uh, to help people, you know, sort of, you know, just average people understand what they're looking at. And so generally, you know, the cooler colors are, will represent areas of lighter rain. You get into the warmer colors such as the oranges and yellows, you have the heavier uh, precipitation. And then of course, if you get into the reds, you're talking about extremely heavy precipitation. Now, that's how radar works when you're talking about the reflectivity aspect of it. Now, back a, a couple of decades ago, we started coming out with Doppler radar. And everybody here is Doppler. We, we've, been talk, we've been in the Doppler wars, and Brad Panovich will tell you that. We've been, we've been having the Doppler marketing war since the 1980s. And basically, it's, it's the same principle. The only difference is that the radar software now can interpret the actual motion of the targets, and it only can detect the motion toward and away from the radar itself. In other words, along that beam, along that radial. Uh, and so what we, again, are looking for are uh, areas of motion that are either toward or away from the radar. And if you have uh, cooler colors, that represents motion toward the radar. Warmer colors is, is motion away from the radar. And so when we see these couplets side by side, then you can kind of fill in the blanks. We can't see motion going this way. Can people see my image up there in the thumbnail? 
yeah. are they able to see me? Okay, so they they can't. If I'm the radar here, they, the 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 radar cannot interpret motion that's tangential, if you will, to to, to the radar. It can only see it back and forth along the radio. And so, if you get these couplets next to each other showing this this very very sharp wind shear or gate to gate shear, as they sometimes call it, uh, then 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 you can interpret the fact that there well there must be a rotation there because why else would you have air moving one direction? You know, on one mile of on this side, and then a mile on the other side, you have rotate. You know, you have air flowing away from the radar. So that that's where the meteorologist comes in. Is is we see these couplets and we we understand that there is uh, that there is rotation there. So generally speaking, the rotation that we're looking at though is the broader rotation in the thunderstorm, not not so much the tornado. Detecting tornadoes is is very difficult. And that's actually why we're going to be here tonight, getting into a little bit deeper in it. Uh, so we're ba basically seeing the broader rotation in the thunderstorm a, a lot. That's called a mesocyclone. Uh, and so that's where then the meteorologists at the National Weather Service, that's where they come in and they have to decide, okay, is this rotation in the thunderstorm going to spin up a tornado? Could that drop a tornado down to the ground? Um, un unless the storm happens to be very close to the radar site itself. And then at that point, you know, they, they can they can actually see the tornado circulation itself. And then finally, and, and maybe I'll hand this one off to Brad, because I hate to, to dominate the whole thing, but we have dual pole uh, Doppler radar, which has come out recently. And uh, Brad, if you'd like to take that one, I'd be happy to kind of share the, uh, the, whole, the whole explanation <laughs> with you if you want to take it from there. Yeah, it's uh, people are probably wondering, man, I didn't realize radar was so advanced. But yeah, this it's a really complex, you know, set of equipment that we use, the dual pole that that Eric was just correctly talking about, instead of sending one beam out now, we send two beams. Um, and the two beams allow us to kind of uh, triangulate things a little bit better. We get better uh, size and shape of the targets now. So uh, before where Eric was talking about, we know uh, how dense the targets are. We know what direction they're moving thanks to Doppler effect. Now with the dual pole, we can know the size of the objects. And the key part here is in dual pole, you know the size of the objects in relation to other objects they're next to. So for instance, if we're detecting tornadoes, we can detect debris because we know a two by four is shaped differently than a shingle. Um, in mixed precipitation, we know a snowflake is shaped different than a raindrop or um, a piece of ice sleet. Um, so the dual pole gives us the ability to detect the type of particles that are in the atmosphere. We can detect bugs, birds, we can really kind of you know, decipher this information a lot more. So the radar, you know, through the years keeps getting more advanced, the scan strategies keep advancing. So it's really amazing. Uh, I, I kind of refer to always Doppler radar as like the, the meteorologist, meteorologist MRI machine. We have an ability to, you know, do an MRI on a storm and they just get more advanced all the time. And that ability to remote sense our weather with a Doppler radar is probably one of the best tools we have, especially for severe thunderstorm forecasting and now casting on a daily basis because we can see what's going on without actually having to be under that specific storm. Yeah, and, and, the, and the, the, the dual pole is short for polarization. And so Brad was talking about is with the, the two beams that are going out, you have one beam that is, you know, waving like this in the vertical, yeah. and then you have the second one, which gives you that extra cross section that Brad was talking about. So, so you have one doing this and one doing this. And then, of course, we're, Brad and I are waiting now for the next generation of radars to come along, which I think they're supposed to be deployed in the 2030s. Those yeah. are called phased array, phased array yeah. radars, and I, don't ask me to explain those ones. To you. <laughs> I need to look that one up. Yeah, the phased array, what I do know about phased array, this is what they're using to shoot down missiles with right now in the military. Mm. So it allows okay. them to track objects in real time and shoot down uh, missiles. So the military, just like everything that we use, it's got its origins in the military. And yeah, phased array is going to be, the, the, the dishes look crazy. They're like these big flat dishes instead yeah. of the concave dishes that we're used to now. They, they're going to look crazy when they get installed. People are going to wonder what the heck those things are. Well, if they can track missiles, hopefully they can track tornadoes a little bit better than we can. With yeah. <laughs> so when we look more specifically at the Carolinas, I think we have eight total radar sites across North and South Carolina. But if we're just talking for this show, we're talking about more of Western and Central North Carolina. Um, I guess I'll toss this to you, Eric. What radar sites specifically cater to those locations? Well, yeah, I'm glad you started with me only because uh, I was here a little bit before Brad and 
you know, I, I can give you a little bit of the history, but yeah, the whole NEXRAD modernization uh, that, that really was replacing the, the radars that I grew up with, the WSR 57s and the WSR 74s. And of course, those numbers stand for the years, more or less that those radars were deployed. Uh, these radars now, the Doppler radars that are, that are all installed across the country, they're called WSR 88s. And that's, that stands for 1988 when, when really this first generation of radars came out. And so what happened was, is, as these radars were, were being deployed, and it takes a while, so this was all really going down in the mid-90s, and it, we began to learn that this modernization, and I put that in quotes, that was taking place across the country, uh, was essentially stripping down the Charlotte area's ability to observe and detect weather because they were closing down the National Weather Service office in Charlotte, and they were also taking away our radar. And so what we were left with were three radars in North Carolina. Now, the thing, the thing that, that you need to understand is that the radars were being funded by the Department of Commerce in, that, in the United States Department of Commerce and also the Department of Defense. So because the Department of Defense was writing a very big check for all of this, they got first choice. Well, as you all know, we have a lot of bases, military bases here in North and South Carolina, but where are they? They're all off to the east. And so what ended up happening is we had three Doppler radar systems positioned in North Carolina that were either all along or east of the I-95 corridor. We had one in Raleigh, we had one in Moorhead City, and we had one in Wilmington. Uh, I think that's right. Check me if I'm wrong on that. Um, and, and so we, we, at the time, we worked with um, uh, Sue Myrick. Gosh, I almost lost her name there for a second. Uh, Congressman Sue Myrick. And, and uh, brought her into the loop, and we appealed to her and said, ma'am, can you please fight for us? We need a radar in Western North Carolina. I mean, come on, this is Charlotte. You know, it's an international airport. It's a huge population center. And we didn't get very far with her. Uh, in terms of South Carolina, the same situation was being set up there. They, they had, you know, the radars down at the coast. They were setting up a radar in Columbia. Uh, but again, nothing in, in west of Columbia. But in their case, they had Senator uh, Ernest Hollings, I think Fritz Hollings is, is the, his nickname. But anyway, Senator Hollings did go to battle for them. And thank goodness, because we in North Carolina at least benefited somewhat from that because they set up their uh, another Doppler radar, thanks to his fight in Greenville-Spartanburg, South Carolina. So that did help cover some of the, the areas in Western North Carolina. But, you know, it was... Kind of a band-aid i mean we we can do way better still than than uh, where we are right now and that's why uh brad and i kind of took up the fight here again um and 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 i got to give meteorologist van denton credit up in winston-salem and Gr greensboro because what happened was and i'm just about done here i know it's a long answer um he uh uh he ran into uh senator richard burr who came through his TV station and he literally grabbed him and pulled him into some dark room, sat him down and said, Senator Burr, I'm begging you, please, uh, can, can you take this fight up for us again? We, we need better radar in, in Western North Carolina. Uh, he said, send me the information. Van Denton did. Senator Burr got very interested in it. Uh, and then um, that's when Van contacted Brad, myself, and a few others and said, can you write a letter to Senator Byrd to really bolster this whole thing, and we did, and uh, it it picked up some momentum, and then um, he 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 rounded up uh, Congressman Robert Pittenger here, which is in the, I think the ninth district of here. It's right in the Greater Charlotte area, though, and they wrote up a bipartisan bill um, to, although they're both Republicans, but but Democrats signed on to it, and uh, they they put together a bill to improve the the whole radar apparatus. Uh, around Western North Carolina and in and, and other areas around the country, and it passed, and it was signed by President Donald Trump. So we thought we were in great shape. We have this bill, we, we have this, you know, legislation in place signed by Donald Trump, and so that's uh, where uh, we, we, we thought we were in great shape, but then Brad and I started to learn much more about how federal government works. And so I'll hand it off to Brad. If Brad wants to pick it up from there, we had this big meeting in August of last year where the Dr. Ussolini, who's the director of the National Weather Service, came down and we had all kinds of uh, both private and public 
uh, officials there meeting, trying to uh, find out exactly how much teeth this legislation really had and where it was going to get us. And that's when we had a bit of a reality check. And I'll let Brad pick it up from there. Yeah. So this bill, while it was great, and Eric, you know, said, you know, it basically told the Weather Service they had to look at the issue of not having a Doppler radar within 50 miles of these major population centers, which Charlotte is. Um, and so they did the study. But this bill, as we found out, um, but there was no funding attached to it. So the solution to the problem, there was no way to pay for it. Uh, so what the Weather Service had to do, and to their credit, I mean, they don't have just money laying around to throw a radar up unless there was money provided through the legislation. They could not pull it out of their general operating budget right now because that means some, some forecaster is going to get laid off or some other office is going to be impacted. So their, their kind of Band-Aid approach was to lower the beam height of three of the surrounding radars, which was GSP, Greer, Greer South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, and the Raleigh-Durham. Um, next rad, the 88D. So they lowered those beam heights to 0.2 degrees off the, off of horizontal to scan a little bit lower. But if the thing about radar that you may not understand, when the beam goes out, it gets wider and weaker with distance. So while the beam is actually looking a little bit lower now, it, it marginally helps, the resolution and power does not really get affected at all. It actually doesn't help us much. So the map you're seeing next to me, and, and I can see it there, is you know, as Eric pointed out, it's stunning to think of North Carolina, this big state we have, and the three radars that are in North Carolina are all along or east of I-95. Every time Eric and I go to a meeting, we tell people that they're like shocked <laughs> that there's not a radar west of I-95 pretty much in the state of North Carolina, which is the majority of the state's population is where we live. In fact, the Charlotte metro area to the Greensboro area to the Hickory area is this triangle of population that is just getting bigger and businesses are just moving in here. So um, what we found out in that November meeting was, hey, they did their job. They did the letter of the law as the legislation was written. They, they came up with a solution that cost them no money except for the environmental study. And then they walked away. Um, and so that left us in a situation like, wow, we got this bill passed and it literally did nothing more than drop the beam elevation to point two. So that brought us to where we are now, where uh, luckily with Van's help and Eric's help um, and Kevin Hartman, who's on our team as well, up in, in, the, in the triad area, was able to start talking to some of his council of government officials, which are, people don't know, that's, a, that's one of them eye-opening for me. I don't know if it's been that way for Eric, but these council oh, yeah. of governments, you've got these group of governments in each part of the state that kind of get all the local governments from towns and counties together to kind of work on you know, problems and issues jointly, because um, obviously there's there's more power in numbers. And I think that's been the most refreshing thing about this, like the third or fourth try, Eric started doing this a long time ago. I was with him when we tried doing this during um, Libby Dole's uh, tenure. We, we tried this last year. This go around, I think the way we've been approaching this problem is trying to bring as many people on board as possible so that this doesn't, the ball doesn't get dropped this go around. So what Kevin was able to do was start talking to some of these local officials and look at what happened in North Texas with the CASA program, which was the Council of Governments in North Texas decided, you know what, we're going to go buy our own radars and we're going to put them up and we're going to service each community in our area. Now, the CASA program is, Eric can attest to this, we looked at that heavily. They they've actually gave us, gave us a bid on doing a similar project, but it didn't really fit the problem we had here. They wanted X-bands and it was just a different situation. Our, our goal in all this and the why you're, why you're seeing Eric and I and Van and us all working together was to make whatever solution we have available to everybody. The data had to be available to all TV stations of the National Weather Service, academia, private sector, public sector, and you know, Joe Q Public um, could access this data as well. So our, what we ended up doing was approaching the Council of Governments in the Hickory area, the Triad, and the Charlotte area. And so all the counties and cities in those areas are trying to work together to do a private-public partnership to buy the radars and install three C-band radars to fill this. We, won't, we don't like to call it a radar gap because <laughs> there is radar coverage. This is to enhance or improve the radar coverage in the Western Carolinas. Right now, we have what is considered fair weather or fair, I would say fair, not fair weather, but fair radar coverage 
we basically want to have excellent radar coverage. So our goal is, I always tell when I talk to public officials about this, like think of these things as cell phone towers. We're getting one bar. We want to put a cell phone tower closer so we get five bars. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the goal we're working on. And so now we're the way we're working on this is the funding is going to come hopefully either through the Council of Governments, um, FEMA, or what we've what I think is a possibility is mitigation funds from Hurricane Florence and Michael um, to help build these radars. So um, for the first time in a long time, I feel like we're right there. We're this close to getting this done. Um, and it's really been an exciting project so far to be a part of. Yeah, Brad, when you say that it's not really a radar gap per se, um, but the, the problem is that the radar is sampling too high above the ground for it to be you know, any real useful data. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, when you're detecting severe weather, it happens near the ground. Now, it's important to know what's going on in the cloud above, but because the earth is curved, as the radar beam gets farther away from the radar sites, it starts looking higher and higher up in the sky. So, for instance, from GSP, which is Greer, South Carolina, when the radar beam gets to Charlotte, Depending on what, what pretending on what, ta- or depending on what part of town you're on, it's either around six thousand feet to as high as eight thousand feet, and then you get up towards Concord and Salisbury. It's like ten to thirteen thousand feet above the ground. Um, tornadoes don't happen at thirteen thousand. Right? They happen down in the lowest couple thousand. So our goal is to get the beam height at five thousand feet or lower. You know, eight fifty millibar level or lower, where we can sample the base of the cloud and see that rotation and see. Um, severe weather downdrafts, uh, downbursts, see if hail's making it all the way to the surface, um, calculate rainfall rates better. If you can sample the whole vertical of a storm, you're going to get better rainfall rates. So there's a lot of facets. It's just not about tornadoes. It's about all types of weather. If you have better radar coverage, you can you can get better forecasts. And, and the big public safety issue is here, we can mitigate things better. We'll cut down hopefully on our false alarm rate. And I know Eric's done this research. We have a really high false alarm rate for tornadoes here because of that lack of uh, lower beam coverage. And it also helps for flash flooding, which we know in the Western Carolinas is a big issue. If we get better rainfall rate measurements from dual pole radars that are closer, we can actually kind of uh, get ahead of these flash flood events before they really start causing issues. More of our conversation with Brad Penovich and Eric Thomas coming up after this break. Welcome back. We're talking this week with Chief Meteorologist Brad Panovich of WCNC-TV and Chief Meteorologist Eric Thomas of WBTV, both stations in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they're sharing with us their proposed solution to solving Western North Carolina's radar problem. Scotty? Um, Brad, I want to, first of all, comment. We've got so many comments coming through. We're going to get to your questions. Uh, the viewers very intrigued by this conversation, but you were talking about uh, the the radar not being able to see what's going on at the ground. Uh, yourself and, and Eric Thomas both, uh, I think it was March 2012, uh, were both working when we saw a thunderstorm roll through the northern uh, part of Charlotte into the Concord area. Uh, it dropped a tornado, but there was no tornado warning issue until the Raleigh office picked it up in, in an adjoining county. So uh, I guess maybe that's kind of like a, a situation you guys are presenting in these uh, in these meetings of saying this has really happened. Yeah. So 2012 is just one of the prime examples. There's there's countless others, honestly. But that was 2:36 in the morning. Um, we had a tornado form on the wedge boundary, which in the Carolinas, you know how crazy that is. Um, and this tornado spun up about 2:30 in the morning. Actually, an EF2. Um, two kids in a home were actually thrown onto 485 in their beds. They were safe. They were, they were fine, but their house was actually blown onto 485 and there was no tornado warning, not even a severe thunderstorm warning issued um, until the, like you said, the Raleigh office actually two counties over because the Raleigh office covers Stanley County and GSP covers uh, Cabarrus County and Mecklenburg County. So it actually issued a weird warning when it popped up. It was so weird. It was like, there was like a, a gap a county space because they didn't have jurisdiction over Cabarrus County. Um, and the reason that warning was issued, and, and I actually found out afterwards, the forecaster on duty that night in Raleigh, his his parents, I think, lived in the Charlotte area, in the Concord area, and he was on the phone with them asking him what was going on, and the phone cut out. 
And so he knew that there was damage occurring and actually helped him pull the trigger on issuing that warning. And he was looking a little bit closer at the terminal Doppler radar, which is a smaller C-band radar near the airport um, to detect that. But that was kind of the first, I, I don't know if I want to say it's the first, but it was one of those things where that brought this to public attention more and really where I think it was easy to go to Senator Burr and, and Robert Pittenger and say, hey, look what's happened. We have an example of how this lack of coverage has impacted people or constituents in your area. Now, I hope we don't have to have that happen again, because I always feel like in these situations, people don't act until something bad happens. Um, we want to we want to act long before another event happens so that that doesn't happen. But unfortunately, I think you're right that it takes sometimes these negative impact events to cause people to actually take action. Um, Brad, I'll go ahead and follow up on that point because we're getting uh, several comments from folks who want to know a little bit more about the terminal radar solution that was installed at the airport here in Charlotte, whether or not that helps the situation at all, either currently or with some of the planned improvements. Yeah, so I'll let Eric to say, say the same thing. It, it's a huge help. Don't get me wrong. The terminal Doppler radar, if it wasn't there, we would even have a bigger issue. What the terminal Doppler radar is, the, um, the FAA installed these at all the big airports to detect wind shear. Um, and so these were put in some of the major airports and their goal initially was never meant to be used for the weather service. Uh, they were, they were FAA radars. Um, they were meant to cover the radar field and approach and take off and landing for aircraft. So they're C-band radars. They're not dual pole. They're very weak. Um, and they, and at least the one in Charlotte has a horrible beam blockage issue <laughs> to the north and west. Um, there's actually a communication tower which blocks the beam. So while it does help fill the gap a little bit, it's not a, it's not a solution. We need a, a powerful dual pole Doppler radar um, to take the place. And people always say, hey, it's no big deal. You guys got a terminal Doppler. And I'm always like, okay, let's swap out your 88D for a terminal if you think they're so great. Most people would never do that. Um, so they're great. It's a Band-Aid approach similar to lowering the beam height but it doesn't even cover the whole area that we're concerned about. It's obviously, if you get up to the Greensboro triad area, the terminal Doppler up there doesn't really do anything for them. Well, and just to dovetail on what Brad just said, look no further than the March 2012 tornado that Brad was just you know, referencing. Uh, where was the tornado warning from Greenville Spartanburg if, if, if this terminal Doppler radar is so useful? Uh, so it, 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 it didn't help them much um, and, and the other thing I would mention is Brad talked about the two kids who were hurled from their home. Uh, it was more than just one or two homes that were hit by that thing. It, some argued that it was almost an EF3. If not an EF3, there were, there were 41 homes that were left uninhabitable from that tornado. So it was the real deal. And, and, and as said, it went unwarned for. And, and Brad referenced this a little bit earlier about the false alarms. That's the other problem. About three out of every four tornado warnings are false alarms, and that's a problem because people just stop listening and adhering, you know, to the warnings after a while when you have that high of a false alarm rate. And so, if we had better detection, we would have more reliable warnings. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. I do have a viewer question. I know we're we're working on the nine o'clock hour here. Uh, this one comes from Maggie Balcom. She asks, "Is there anything we can do as residents to make this happen?" It sounds like now it is strictly a funding issue and not necessarily an approval issue. Is there any any um, merit to that, or is there anything you can say to to residents and folks out there that are concerned about this and want to be a part of it? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Maggie for the offer. I think that's <laughs> could, you know rally you know the public behind this, but that's really a good question. Right off the top of my head, uh, I can't think of anything. Maybe Brad has an idea, but uh, as Brad pointed out, you know, thanks to people like Kevin Hartman that this is all really taking place now amongst a fairly small group of people with these various council of governments that are uh, hopefully going to get, get in front of the right people uh, who will make hopefully the right decision and start opening up the, uh, the gates for, for some of that funding to, to flow into this. But uh, I don't know, Brad, uh, is there anything you can think of what the public can do? I would say that the biggest thing the public could do is just is, you know, try to keep pressure on your local officials, ask questions, say, hey, you know, how, how is this program going? Are you supporting this? The other thing I think um, as we look down the road, getting the continuing cost of maintaining these radar systems, um, you know, we at some point we're going to need help from from, you know, the corporate people in our area, I think, to help 
maintain these. So if, if someone's in the steel or concrete business, air conditioning business, um, fencing business, all these radar sites need uh, certain construction. Um, and if we can get donations or people to provide some of that, that would lower our overall cost. Um, and things like power and internet, we're hoping most of those will get donated by local companies. But so if you know of a company that might be interested in helping with the construction or maintenance of these, uh, that's certainly something we'd love to hear about. But I think the biggest thing, as Eric said, it's kind of we're going in the right track. I think the big thing is to keep the pressure on maybe your local officials. So next time you see your local county commissioner or, or councilman or someone, just just throw it out there. Hey, how's that radar project going? <laughs> because no. I, I, I want to keep this ball rolling. I don't want to see it fall to the wayside because I know Eric's gone through probably three or four disappointments. I feel like I've been through too many. And every time you get to this little ledge and you feel like something's going to happen, we've run into the, the federal government issue all the time where it's like, it's so hard to get things done through the federal government. And that's kind of why we went this route. We just, we ran into so many brick walls and dead ends with the, with the federal government. We kind of took it upon ourselves and it's actually been much easier to work with the local council of governments than it ever has been with the, the federal government. And to, just to quickly amplify Brad's point, uh, we're four years into this, four years uh, since Van Denton had a, that initial meeting with uh, Senator Burr. So yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's a slog. And, and guys, you you were talking about I think you've titled the North Carolina Radar Project. Uh, some viewer questions also um, asking of, of locations. I know nothing's set in stone, but is there any idea of where, how many radars, uh, which sites may uh, may be good for these radar sites? Uh, I mean, towns that would be good for these radar sites. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll just start. Let, let Brad take it. Uh, I yeah, we've we we think we got them nailed down pretty well. You can see the uh, the map uh, right there next to me. We, we're we're kind of pinpointing three, as Brad said, C band radars. Now they're not quite as powerful as the S band uh, WSR eighty eight Ds at the National Weather Service maintains at this point, but if the C-bands are, if you buy the right ones, they're excellent. Uh, they're dual poles, Brad mentioned, which is a step up from the uh, terminal Doppler radar just north of the airport. Uh, but uh, we're looking at Hickory, which would do a great job of covering the foothills. And uh, Scotty, I have a feeling that'll make you happy. Uh, <laughs> and then yes. we're also looking at uh, Monroe, which would cover the PD River Valley, uh, that area in the Sand Hills, and obviously sweeping into Charlotte too. There's a lot of overlap along the I-77 corridor. And then the third site would be somewhere in the Salisbury area, maybe a little bit northeast of it, uh, because those areas up around Winston-Salem, Greensboro, they're in a world of hurt as well. Uh, so especially that I-40 corridor from, say, Winston-Salem westbound into the Hickory area, that is the absolute uh, worst area. They're, they are the, further, the farthest from uh, the radar sites than any other point in Western North Carolina. Brad? Yeah, I think those sites are kind of, you know, we're not tied to any specific one. We've been lucky because the Hickory Airport and the Monroe uh, Charlotte Executive Airport, we met with both of those. Eric and I were down in Monroe, gosh, was it a month ago, two months ago mm -hmm. now? Yeah. Um, and both of those airports have been generous and basically gave us handshake agreement saying, hey, we would, we would, we'll host it. We don't have to buy the land. We don't have to worry about um, leasing anything. They would put it on their property. Um, and that, that solves a lot of issues because being on an airport property is great for the airport, but it's also great for us because they have a lot of the infrastructure already in place to maintain with communication, power, security, fencing. So the third site is the one up in the Thomasville, Salisbury, up in there. That one's the only one that's kind of in the question mark. Um, and the goal is to hopefully find somebody to give us the land to put it on because that's an added expense, you know, that I was worried about initially. It's like, you know, if you have to put this somewhere, you've got to buy land and deal with that issue. But the fact that people have stepped up and said, hey, we can put it at the airport and they're not going to charge us a dime. In fact, Monroe was really great. They told us, you know, if they couldn't put it at the airport, they would find city land somewhere that we could put it on. So yeah. um, it, it's been great. Everywhere we go, Eric and Van and Kevin and Chris uh, White, we've gone to, the first reaction we get from people is like, I had no idea this was a problem. And second of all, it's like, why can't we do something right now? It's like such a gung-ho mentality that I love it. It's like, People want to like literally start a GoFundMe and write checks that day <laughs> to get this yeah. done. And unfortunately, we can't do it that way. But it's nice to see people really see the problem and go, you know what? This is something I can get behind right now. Well, guys, we certainly appreciate you joining us tonight. And um, I know internally we, we've all been following this and really excited about 
the progress that's been made. For those who are watching tonight, uh, as Brad said, continue to urge your city leaders uh, about the radar uh, project. And hey, if you're in air conditioning or fencing or concrete or yeah. still like Brad was talking about, get in touch with Brad or Eric. I'm sure uh, they so, can uh, use uh, some of your inputs yeah, as Scotty, well. Uh, real quickly, just to tell you that the main things, we need concrete footers, we need steel towers, we need a shed for each. Then these are three locations. We need a shed or a building. We need two air conditioning units for each to cool the equipment. And we need backup generators at each location, plus power and communication, which is fiber. So if you're in any of those fields and you might, and that's a cool thing, you can be part of something great. Like you could be the official generator provider for the North Carolina Radar Project. It's a great PR thing for any business. That helps lower our costs and that cost could go to maintaining these things for several years down the road. So the more money we save on the front end, the more we'll have to maintain these because they're radars. They're going to break down at some point. So we have to have a continuing budget to keep the upkeep on them going. Yeah. So if you work in any of those fields, give uh, Brad or Eric or, or Van or anyone else a shout. Uh, if you shout to us, we'll, we'll pass along the information. So uh, this is definitely a project that, that, um, that everybody can get behind because uh, we all need to be up to date with the weather. Well, guys, we appreciate it. We're going to go to a quick break. But after that, uh, we're going to talk about the tropics the drought situation that's unfolding in the Carolinas, and maybe when we start to see some cool air move into the air. We'll see after the break. Part of the mission of the National Weather Service is to save lives and protect property by issuing watches, warnings, forecasts, and analyses of hazardous weather conditions in the tropics. It's a collaborative effort across several NOAA offices, working together to make the best possible forecast. Hurricane Hunter aircraft from NOAA and the Air Force fly into the heart of the storm gathering detailed information on storm location, motion, strength, and size that can't be obtained any other way. Other NOAA aircraft use special instrument packages called drop sons to measure the steering currents surrounding the storm. Observations also come from polar and geostationary satellites, ocean buoys, and Doppler radar. All of these data are checked for quality and then put into a suite of computer models that generate predictions of the hurricane's behavior and the general conditions of the atmosphere in which the hurricane is embedded. The observations are also sent directly to NHC. They're analyzed by the hurricane specialists who combine the data with their experience to formulate the forecast and decide when and where to issue warnings. Other parts of NOAA contribute their expertise by making forecasts of storm surge, rainfall, and tornadoes. But even accurate forecasts and warnings aren't enough if you're not ready to take action when a storm is headed your way. Be prepared this hurricane season. For more information, visit our website at hurricanes.gov. Yeah, we were uh, learning a bit there about uh, forecasting hurricanes and exactly what the Hurricane Center does. And I thought that was kind of appropriate as I toss it to Shay. Shay, we have numerous tropical systems out there, but there's one interest is Karen. I'm sure if you've uh, been following along, Karen is doing all kinds of things out in the Atlantic. So I'm going to toss it to you. Give us a little uh, update on what's going on in the tropics and maybe where Karen may be headed or even if Karen will stick around through the weekend. I'll, I'll toss it to you, Shay. All right, Scotty, thank you very much. I'll go ahead and uh, share a screen here just to kind of give a reminder. Let me know when you can when you can see the screen. Um, let's see. You're good. Right. We're good to go? Okay, good. Yeah, I had to move that little ticker down the screen on the other monitor. Um, just a reminder here that our season, we're, we are sort of, we are now in sort of a downslope portion. We're past the most active portion, which is September the 10th estimated. But typically between September 10th and the middle of October, we see a lot of activity and that's ongoing now. We're seeing maybe even uh, Lorenzo out there becoming a major hurricane. So this is the time of year we start to see more hurricanes than tropical storms when it comes to tropical cyclones in general in the Atlantic Basin. That includes the Gulf of Mexico as well. So uh, this just kind of shows that the trend where we are right now, we're nearing the end of the month for September. So we're on this, this shoulder right here and then it drops off a little bit, but we have another upward spike as we get towards the middle of October. Again, this area is still very active during this time of the year. If you look across the Atlantic Basin now, we have um, three systems, well, really two. Jerry has um, gone post-tropical on us, so it, it pretty much is just a kind of a swirling mass out there. It's really just a dried out surface low without without much convection to it. We have um, Tropical Storm Karen, which went over Puerto Rico yesterday and last night. It's now to the north, winds are holding at 40 miles per hour to the north-northeast at 14. And then we have Lorenzo way out here, it's heading towards the central Atlantic. 
and uh, then I'll get to the tracks in just a minute. But just taking a look at these systems right here, Lorenzo being the big player on the map right now. Karen, way over here, this is on the on the back end of a, an upper load to its west, uh, which is having some effect on it. It's injecting some dry air and some shear on it. And then we have Jerry just over, almost over Bermuda right now. And you can see just how dried out that system is. Not a whole lot of convection going on with this one. Uh, if you look at the remnants for Jerry heading over Bermuda now, not, not much. Maybe a few showers on the south or southeast quadrant. Nothing to really uh, worry about. Maybe a few gusty winds, and that's about it. It should be out of there by tonight or tomorrow morning. Uh, if we look at Lorenzo, this one is uh, really growing, really strengthening. It, it is expected to become a major hurricane. It would be our fifth major hurricane, I believe, for this year. Um, or a fifth hurricane, I'm sorry. And then uh, we do expect to see this at a Category 3 or higher in time. I, I don't think it's going to affect anything. In fact, if we go back to the map, Lorenzo looks to head off to the north and then eventually off to the northeast and up along up to the graveyard in time. So right now it's going to be moving over a, a warm body of water with relaxed upper shear, so it has a lot of room to grow. But fortunately for us, it won't be affecting the mainland, and it will be for shipping interest only. So uh, prudent uh, mariners beware. If we look at – let me go back to the map here for Karen and uh, show you the track for Karen. Now this one, this one gets a little weird, and one of the reasons is because high pressure is going to be building to its north. Uh, what that does is it imparts a, a clockwise flow over it. First thing it's going to do is it's going to stall it out Friday morning. And then what it's going to do is, is, is suppress it to the south where it actually does what's called a, a trochoidal loop or trochoidal wobble, where it just sort of spins around and then loops away off to the west. That's the high pressure stalling it and then nudging it off to the west as the, um, the Bermuda High comes into play. Um, as it gets to this point, it looks like a lot of the model guidance for right now really shows a lot of upper shear on the system, not really a lot of organization. It keeps it as a tropical storm two days, four and five. I'm not entirely convinced it's even going to hold up as it heads towards the Bahamas. It may come apart before then. But as of right now, it's not something to worry about for the Southeast United States. There's, there's no real concern for the system right now. And there's still a lot of uncertainty beyond day five as to what what actually happened with it. We do know, we do think it will weaken and, and it may not make it even to the Bahamas as a tropical cyclone or a named system might be remnants of something. Uh, but for right now, we're sticking with the tropical storm through days four and five with a little bit of a tricoidal loop and a swing back to the west or the west-southwest. And that's pretty much, uh, that's pretty much it in a wrap, Scotty. I, I really am um, not too concerned about the tropics right now when it comes to the coastal United States. You know, there was an area off the Yucatan Peninsula that had about a 20, 30% chance in that that sort of fizzled out. So um, things are looking pretty quiet right now. We want it to stay that way, but we, we, have to, we watch every single tropical wave that's coming across the Atlantic Basin, especially in the main development region this time of the year and the Gulf of Mexico. So I'll pass it back to you, but for right now, I think we're, we're okay. All right, thank you for that, Shay. I appreciate it. Um, normally we do our weather news segment here, but uh, since the weather has been pretty quiet, uh, not much going on. I, I do want to uh, after I talk about this, toss out to Eric Thomas for a second. Uh, it was discovered earlier uh, this week. Uh, let me pull up this. Um, here we go. It was discovered earlier this week that uh, they found uh, off Cedar Island. And if you've ever been out to the Outer Banks, Ocracoke Island, uh, Corolla, places like that, you've seen the wild horses. Well, 28 uh, wild horses were, uh, were found dead after um, folks were able to populate the area and start to clean up from Dorian, Hurricane Dorian. So uh, unfortunately, uh, some of those horses were not able to survive uh, the passage of Hurricane Dorian. So um, that's kind of uh, some of the bigger weather news that we've, uh, we've seen. But uh, as Eric Thomas is joining us, he's out at Nagshead right now. And Eric, um, uh, I don't know, I know Nagshead didn't see the brunt of Hurricane Dorian, but was you able to see any remnants or any uh, any leftover damage uh, from uh, from being out there this week? Uh, no, it's it's funny, and this is a little bit embarrassing. Uh, Twenty years ago, we had another family reunion out here, and we were down the road uh, at another home, and we had about twelve people with us at the time. And so we thought, geez, let's go look at the home that we spent this beautiful week uh, in twenty years ago. So we we pulled up and we saw the home, and it looked like it was unoccupied and there was a big sign there for rent. We thought, Hey, let's pull in, let's walk around the house and, and look at it. And so we all got out and we're walking around this wraparound deck and all of a sudden the homeowner walks out on us. <laughs> just, just, just about five hours ago, this happened. And we're like, Oh, um, we're not robbing the place. Um, it's nice to meet you. We apologize 
or the intrusion, um, we'll, we'll leave now. And he was so nice. And he said, no, 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 it's, it's great to meet you. Do you want to come in? We're like, oh, no, no sir. Um, but uh, we're just, you know, revisiting this after 20 years. And then I asked him, I said, you know, I'm a meteorologist. And how did you do with Dorian? And, and he said, you know what? We, we, we barely noticed anything. He said, I had a rotten fence over there by my pool. It needed repair. That was the only thing that was blown over because it was in total disrepair. He said, and so often we, we luck out up here on the northern end once you get north of Hatteras because, you know, the angle of attack for hurricanes up the northern end of Outer Banks is, is just not ideal for a lot of heavy wind damage. Uh, up this way. So they, they tend to take the brunt of it from around the Crystal Coast, you know, Wilmington on up through, say, Cape Lookout, uh, Hatteras, you know, those areas, they get the worst of it. And so they really came through it almost totally unscathed uh, up here around Nags Head, Kitty Hawk. Uh, and, and this is funny that you mentioned the wild horses, Scotty, and I'd like you to follow up on that because I, I, I was wondering where exactly that happened because one of the bucket list items on my daughter, uh, who's 26 now, Number one, number one bucket list was I want to see the wild horses up there on Corolla. And we did, we rented a Jeep and we went up there and we saw, I, I, I wish I could put some video up here for you right now, but we, we got incredible uh, pictures and video of the wild horses up there on Corolla. They look like they're all in great shape. Uh, so that just happened yesterday that we were up there. Uh, in fact, keep an eye on my Facebook page over the next few days and I'll, I'll put some stuff up there. It's Eric Thomas WBTV on the Facebook page, but Scott, it could, where, where did these uh, horses overcoat? What, what happened? Scotty, I have another article pulled up here, if that's helpful. Okay, yeah, I was going to, I was pulling up the article as Eric was talking, but sure. go ahead, James, if you got it pulled up. I, I have one pulled up, uh, WRAL citing McClatchy yep. newspaper wire. 28 of the 49 horses on Cedar Island between the Outer oh, Banks Cedar and the Island. mainland are suspected okay. dead. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it says this is this herd is lesser known than the the other herd that I think you were referencing, Eric. Okay. Yeah. Oh boy, I, I had no idea. Uh, and 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 now, if, if you can help me, and maybe the people who are listening to, where where is Cedar Island? Is that close to Ocracoke? Because I knew they 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 were hit hard. Yeah, Cedar's just to the southwest of Ocracoke. It's where the uh, ferry comes across. Okay. There's another herd just south of Ocracoke on um, Shackleford Banks down near Cape Lookout, but it sounds like they came through one scave this time, which is a blessing. Yeah. Wow. I'll admit, I don't think I realized there were multiple herds, but I guess that makes sense. I wonder if they were, I know we're getting off topic here, I wonder if they were all part of the same, wasn't this, the Spanish brought them over in the 1500s and they shipwrecked, and then the, the horses actually swam to shore. That's that's at least the ones up here in Corolla that that I understand. Yeah, well, that's, that's, why right. call, that's why they call it the horse latitudes, right? Yeah, well, there you go. Plus, the sound is so shallow in there; it wouldn't be too audacious for them to walk across the sound and walk yeah. to islands like Cedar Island, or to get washed washed across that distance in a hurricane. Interesting. They, sometimes they would push horses off the boats during doldrums, uh, the ships to to deweight them, right, to give them more flotation, and they would they would have to. Get rid of some of the heavy weight. So sometimes wow. we go. It's kind of sad, but that, that was kind of, that was a true thing that they did uh, when there was mm. a little wind for those giant uh, sailboats, right? So, wow, um, yeah. So if a few of them made it, hey, good for them, and they've they've been thriving ever since. You know, they're protected now. So, yeah, yeah. So that's um, that's some sad news out of out of the Outer Banks in that part. So. Uh, another story that um, right now not really getting too much attention. I know there's a, a little bit, but um, as we continue to go through this week and into next week is the drought conditions. Uh, we've got the drought monitor pulled up right now. This is highlighting um, both North and South Carolina. And uh, looking at the data, and this was as of last Thursday. Now, tomorrow morning uh, around 9, 10 o'clock, we'll get an update for um, – update for this, but um, as of last Thursday, 42%, 42, or I'm sorry, 43.4% of North Carolina was in the abnormally dry uh, category of the drought. So that's just kind of like the first stage of, uh, of the drought monitoring. And if you look at South Carolina, those numbers are a little bit more elevated. Um, 
South Carolina coming in at 60 uh 63.41% and then 24% is in the uh the moderate drought category and about 6.5% of South Carolina in the severe drought category so both north and south carolina experiencing uh some um dry conditions and uh, Evan you and Shay were talking before the show I'll toss it to you guys and and Eric can join as well if he wants and uh, we've kind of gotten this dry period and uh, I, I know a lot of people are, are, are relieved that yes, it's hot, but it's not a sticky hot. And unfortunately, when we have these dry, uh, these high pressure set up over the area, it's that dry air. So we get a lot more evaporation going on and we have those cooler mornings and warmer afternoons, but the dry air really evaporates any moisture that's left over. So um, you tag on temperatures in the 80s and the 90s with the dry air. Uh, that's why we're seeing a lot of these dry conditions. But Evan, you and Shay, and I also, uh, if Erica wants to jump in here, you were talking about over the next couple of weeks, we should start to see finally some of these cold fronts start to push through in the Carolinas. And hopefully, fingers crossed, those will generate some rain and they won't be cold dry front. I mean, uh, dry cold fronts. Yeah, Scotty, yeah, I'll jump in real quick and let Evan kind of fill in. But I mean, if you look at that drop monitor, you can see the the white path that Dorian carved not too long ago. So there's plenty of rain at the coastline there from uh, say south, southeastern South Carolina all the way up. Um, yeah, we're seeing some of these, um, you know, undulating fronts dropping into the region now. We, we're expecting another one this weekend. Large ridges setting up over the eastern United States. These fronts don't really have a chance to bring a lot of rain. They're just they're just getting dried out on the way. They're, in other words, frontalysis is occurring or where fronts come to die in the southeast, so to speak. So we're, we go through that phase until October-ish, and then we start to see these fronts really ramp up across the country. And it really comes from teleconnections on the West Coast. What's coming across the Pacific, what's able to get that polar jet to start dipping down across the country. And right now we have the subtropical ridge still raining over the Southeast region. And so that's what's really driving this weather right now until we get the polar, um, uh, the polar jet to really start taking dips down in the country and providing lots of moisture from the Gulf. We'll start to see some probably some storm activity coming up here in the next few weeks just because of the, the moisture feed from the Gulf along these cold fronts that make it down and make the connection across the country. So I'll pass on to Evan, see if you want to add anything to that or if you have any more insight and go from there. Yeah, so you know, viewers that have been watching us over the last couple of weeks have heard us throw out the number 2016. That was the year, obviously, that so many wildfires plagued Western North Carolina as well as parts of Tennessee and Georgia. Um, and while we're certainly not forecasting mass fires again, it is concerning to see that as of right now, um, the Asheville area is drier than it was in 2016, and it is also hotter than it was in 2016. And as we get those cold fronts starting to dive you know, across West North Carolina, making its way through the Central Carolinas and down towards the coast, um, we just we got to hope that there's precipitation coming with it. Because uh, if we get more of the dry fronts like we saw last year, um, you know, that was really what kicked off Gatlinburg um, and that huge fire monstrosity, just absolute disaster. Um, so we're, we're praying for rain um, as October nears. Eric, uh, I know you're, you're on vacation, but uh, your friend and my friend, uh, Steve Onisorge, uh, was able to do a story on Monday night talking about uh, talking with some folks here in the foothills here in Burke County about the 2016 fires and uh, how it looks a little bit similar to to what we go through what we could be going through here later on into the fall season so uh, we, we definitely need some rain around here yeah no doubt and you can be deceived by looking at the year-to-date rainfall at least here around Charlotte it, it, it looks like we have a surplus and it's not bad but uh, as you've all well documented I mean the last you know six to eight weeks has just been just way too dry and I was fascinated by that point about Gatlinburg that if that doesn't get your attention uh, I don't know what will uh, that that was incredible but uh, as you pointed out Scotty the 2016 fires in the foothills uh, were a big problem as well so we uh, we need it you know you tend to want to see a little bit of dry weather in the fall so the farmers can can get their harvest uh, they, they don't like a lot of wet weather but th th this has gotten a little bit out of control at this point and um, I, you know, again, I just was glancing at the long range and listening closely to, uh, you know, what Shay and, and, and Evan were talking about, as well as, um, I, I guess, was it Tim? Uh, I'm, I'm losing track now, but uh, uh, it's, um, 
yeah, it, it's concerning. I mean, I just looked at the long range European and, uh, you know, yes, we do see some fronts coming through, but they do somewhat look moisture starved. So I'm not sure there's a lot of encouragement at this point until I, uh, uh, I think it was Evan was talking about, we need to start getting that polar jet, you know, move further down here and get some, get some real, real storm systems into the Southeast and start tapping into that, that Gulf moisture. Yeah, a good friend, Tim Buckley up at WFMY in uh, Greensboro, he tweeted out a photo a couple of nights ago. Uh, and, and this is um, kind of scary if you if you ask me that Greensboro, the, the airport there in Greensboro has measured 0.02 inches of rain. So two one hundredths of an inch of rain for the month of September. So uh, and it doesn't look like we're really, really going to see any major rain chances uh, to close out the rest of September. So uh, that could definitely go down as one if not the driest uh, month, uh, September in, in record. So uh, mm -hmm. definitely need some, some rain. And I know um, just locally here in the Western Carolinas, upstate of South Carolina, and especially the Midlands of South Carolina, dealing with uh, the possibility of some droughts. And you can see uh, there on the screen, 2016, that was a fire up in McDowell County that I was able to uh, work on the scene there with McDowell County Emergency Management. And that was just one of the numerous fires that uh, that was um, taken place in Western Carolina is in 2016. So we're hoping that uh, we can get some rain so we can avoid that situation. But just know, um, you know, with those dry conditions, it's never a bad idea to make sure that all that leaf debris and those sticks and things are away from your home. So if something does happen, you don't have that fuel right beside your house uh, that could help ignite some fires. So uh, just Keep it safe out there, and uh, we will keep you up to date on the drought monitor. We'll post it tomorrow on our social media event, uh, social media outlets uh, to give you the updated information with that. So, uh, gentlemen, anything else before uh, we close out the show tonight? Um, I'll just, I'll just. Uh, first of all, I loved hearing from from everybody on the panel here. Um, good information. I've been out of the loop for several days now, so I'm, I'm thank you all for getting me caught up. Uh, Shay, Shay, I just wanted to hear one more comment from you on the hurricane season because it's really almost been a tale of two seasons. Yeah, you know, it seemed like we were setting records there. Uh, you know, for the first half of hurricane season, in terms of how quiet it was, and uh, boy, did things flip flop uh, out there in, in the Atlantic Basin. Yeah, I think it, it definitely lived up to its peak of the hurricane season starting the beginning of September. I mean, it, things shot up and it's been active ever since. And I mean, that, that really goes to the historical climate plotting of this, uh, uh, you know, what I showed on that first graph earlier. It really is living up to that this year. You know, it really is showing a slightly more active season. I think NOAA is probably going to hit their numbers right on. We still have several weeks to go, you know, until the water's cool, until the sea surface temperature is cool to a comfortable level you know, down into the 70s and, and even lower than that for some, um, you know, you, we could still see high, hybrid systems from time to time, but usually they don't happen. Usually we have enough cold front activity to sweep everything out away from the coast. And we, we end up with more, more fish storms this time of the year, but there are a few that sneak through. So, you know, the merits watching, especially with that ridging building along the Eastern seaboard and to the North, we've got to really watch that because those will also spin up homegrown systems. They, they tend to cause any tropical waves with, with surface low little bit of topspin to them, a little bit of a westward jog as well. Um, so we just have to, we have to keep a real close eye on those as well. But um, right now, I really just hope that sea surface temperatures start to cool and we get our climate, our, our cooling down a little bit more uh, overall. But yeah, we're, we're still very much in the active season, Eric. I mean, you know, yeah. we're, we'll watch Karen. I'm not, I'm not overly concerned about that. I think the NHC said to stick to the dynamical models for right now. And We'll continue to watch that. Maybe the global models will be, be correct or, or pretty much right on what they're saying. Um, as far as any other systems, though, there, there really isn't much else out there. Just a few spots popping up in the Gulf of Mexico. And um, I have to check what the MJO phase is. I'm not sure exactly where that is right now. I'm, I'm a little bit behind on that, too. So we'll have to see where the, the less shear in the, in the area. I think right now it's over the Gulf. So we've got to watch those areas really closely. Yeah. As you mentioned, sometimes one slips through. Uh, look no further than Hugo. Uh, here we are in our, uh, what is it, the uh, 30th year anniversary week, you know, week, basically. So, but yeah, it's been, it's been a privilege uh, joining all of you tonight. Well, Eric, we're always happy to have you, and uh, we'll definitely have you back soon. Enjoy your time there in Nags Head with the family. Uh, maybe you can get a few beach days in. And, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we look forward to seeing some of those pictures and videos that you uh, on your Facebook yeah. page. Yeah. 
Yeah, would love it. I, I, I couldn't believe you guys brought up the, uh, the, the wild horses. And here we were 24 hours earlier, uh, you know, out there shooting pictures. So, yeah, I'll try to definitely share some. We appreciate it. We look forward to it. Everyone, thank you for joining tonight. Don't forget, uh, go to your favorite podcast um, outlet. Uh, maybe that's Google, uh, your Google Play Store, uh, Apple iTunes, Anchor, um, Spotify, uh, numerous uh, podcast uh, places. Go download our podcast. You get all these pushed out. And uh, it's a good to listen to. Maybe if you're on your way uh, home or on your way to work or home, on your way home from work, great to plug in and listen to us. We also recommend, uh, um, Eric was just talking about Hurricane Hugo. Uh, we uh, released our Hugo 30th year anniversary podcast uh, on Sunday. So we'd love for you to check that out. Let us know uh, what you think of that. And as always, we are always taking your recommendations for uh, potential guests and topics. So uh, send us a message if there's anything you'd like for us to cover. Uh, but again, go uh, download our podcast. We'd love uh, to have you on our subscriber list. So until next week, we hope you have a great week. Stay cool out there. It's going to be another hot weekend. So whatever you're doing, if it's outdoors, make sure you take care of yourself. Uh, frequent breaks, uh, water, stay hydrated, and wear the sunscreen. And we'll see you back here next Wednesday night for another episode of the Carolina Women.